0: Today we are entering into the fourth in a series of these messages. Next week we're going to be concluding it and I've told the staff, this is my favorite message in the whole series because I get to talk about how to win lost people. It's about the harvest. Today we're talking about you were created for the harvest in this glorious future series and last night we had a lead the way banquet and and so we have been... Uh, in, in our information meetings, we've been meeting with uh, our board, our pastoral staff, our departmental leaders, people who uh, have been really faithful in different things and, and those who have influence. And last night, uh, according to First Chronicles chapter 29, when David was building the temple, he called for the leaders to come first and to offer their gifts as an example for the people to follow. And so we have followed that biblical instruction, and last night we had our banquet, and uh, last night we had almost $600,000 that were pledged to our new project through the leaders of our church to, to kind of lead the way for what will take place next week when the rest of the congregation joins in that, and I believe the Lord deserves a hand clap for that. that that's a fantastic start to what God is doing. I had sent one of these booklets to my dad who lives in Missouri in, in a retirement village there, and He said, I just want you to know that we gathered our small group together, and he says, We're praying through your 14 days of prayer with you. And he says, And now we're listening to all of your messages, and so I have to be careful what I say about my dad. Uh, Now that I know that he's listening, Uh, love you, Dad, and uh, trust you and your group are having a great day. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Jeremiah. Chapter twenty nine eleven. 11, this has been our theme verse that we have been leading on in this, and as we, as we prepare for next week when we come, and not only will it be the day that we will be giving our pledges, it will be the day where we will be offering our first fruits offering. Uh, many people will be able to give a sizable cash toward your pledge, and we are believing that it will be the largest offering our church has ever taken as we launch into what God is leading us into but I'm going to ask that you would take your books and there's a, a place for you to begin to jot down your notes for this message. And I uh, want you to hang on to these. That will be on page 17 of your booklet. But in Jeremiah 29, 11, the scripture declares, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And then what I'd like you to underline in your thinking this morning, plans to give you a Hope and a glorious future. Father, as we come before you this morning, we recognize that we are in a very exciting season of our church life, and it has everything to do with you because of the kind of God you are and the redeemer that you are and what you've done within our lives, and we give you praise and glory and ask that you would now unlock the various chambers of our hearts so that you have access to them to lead us into places of obedience that only you can do, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Statistics indicate to us that right now, 80% of the churches in America are plateaued or in decline. 3,200 churches in the U.S. die every day, and in fact, we have seen a church in our community on West Genesee Street this year torn down. The population of our world is 7.6 billion people, and it's expected to grow to 9.8 billion by the year 2050 our world is growing at an astronomical rate combined with the fact that the gospel proclamation centers are dying. And in a 10-year period, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the U.S. declined by almost 5 million members, or 9.5%, while the U.S. population increased by 24 million people. As you begin to go through the statistics, and there are some statistics of our area that you will find, I believe, on, on pages six and seven of your book, some of the statistics of the area in which we live. We live in a city of a population of almost 656,000 people in the area, in the metropolitan area of Syracuse. We see the population of OCC and Syracuse University and Le Moyne and, and the school districts that are represented where we are, and we recognize that God has placed us in an influential place for the purpose that his gospel proclamation from Grace Assembly should reach our community. In light of the declining gospel influence, what does God promise of giving the world, and why does he promise of giving the world hope if he doesn't expect that his church would have a message of hope for our world and what does that look like to us? There's an interesting word and we use it all the time and it's this word hope. Every day we use it because it's kind of like some magical word that uh, we hope will live up to its billing like when we say, I hope you feel better. I hope you have a healthy baby. Or I hope you get an A in this class. I hope he or she likes me. I hope to make a difference in our world. I hope their marriage makes it. I hope we get a raise. I, Hope our nation can finally get rid of all of the commercials after Tuesday. Just throwing that out there. So what is hope? What is it based on? I believe that this gives us a little bit of a biblical text of of what hope looks like. And I'd like this to be put on the screen. Hope is a vision for a better days that changes us in the present. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. Hope leads us to a place where we we believe that something is ahead, that something's around a corner. It's in sight and it's good, but that good future, future isn't just an abstract thing. It begins to require something of us. If we hope that we're going to get an A in our class, what it requires of us is for us to change our study habits so that we can prepare to get an A. If we hope that perhaps we'll get a raise where we work, what it requires of us is a change that means that we will put forth a work ethic that will deserve the raise that we hope for. Or we see in the glorious future of grace assembly, what it means is that I hope that our church will be able to see our goals raised and that we'll be able to see this accomplished. But what it means is that I will participate in full obedience to what God is leading me and my family to. The first thing that I would like you to jot down as the first point this morning is this. Hope changes us in the present. Hope changes us in the present. Hope for us is about a promise and a person. All of us understand that it requires, when we hope for something, that it requires an investment of our energies to get there. Once you start down the path of hope, there is no turning back. How many of you know hope is contagious? How many of you like to have hopeful friends? You know, there's something about being around people that are, that are constantly bright in their outlook and, and constantly in filling us with the joys of what can be. We like to be around those. And, but once you start being a hopeful per- person, it will ruin your life. Because once you start hoping, you become vulnerable. Once you start hoping, your heart starts to burst with longing because now you have something you want. Now I'm recognizing that we're just a few weeks away from Christmas and already I'm hearing Christmas music. The stores are changing. You're walking through the store with your kids and they are hoping that you are noticing. Their hearts are bursting with longing. Hope will turn your life upside down. We are experiencing that as a church. I love listening to the conversations that are taking place all around here because people have recognized that while we love what we've got, there is a hope for our future that is building a joy of expectancy within us. And we are praying and seeking God on how He is going to provide for such a huge step of faith. But we know that He's leading and He will provide. Hope is good. Hope sets your heart pounding with wild enthusiasm. Hope opens up your life to more joy and delight and adventure than you ever thought was possible. And hope also leads us to a place of the ache of longing to see our hope fulfilled. I am, now that I have begun to see the plans come together for what our new church looks for, I I have to admit to you, I can't wait to get there. There's a longing in my heart that wants to see this come to fruition. But the one who has promised us this hope is faithful and true. But he does tell us that we need to prepare for it. So here's what I want you to understand today. For the follower of Jesus, hope always depends on the reliability of the one making the promises. I'd like you to jot that down. Hope always depends on the reliability of the one making the promises. You and I know that we've had people promise us different things in our life, and because of their lack of reliability, we knew that that promise probably is never gonna come to pass. How many of you know that when God promises something, we know for a fact that he's reliable, that he will provide what he is promising? Hope is never based on wishful thinking or positive feelings or how much faith we have. Hope is based on a God who is really there and a God who has given us good and sufficient reasons for us to know him and to trust him and to believe that he's about to do something great. And Grace Assembly, because we carry the DNA of God in the lives that we live, that's why we say we are a community of hope welcoming people home. We are a community of hope. Secondly, I'd like you to jot down this morning that hope changes our view of the harvest. Hope changes our view of the harvest. In John chapter 4, verse 35, there's a verse that has Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not say four months more until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe unto harvest. Now, I can almost picture Jesus here as a parent talking to their children about, there's something I don't want you to miss, and he's going, church, I want you to open your eyes and look. Because he recognizes that spiritually as we begin to do that, that what we are going to see through his eyes is that we live in a place that is ripe for the harvest of a spiritual renewal to take place. Now, Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago, and I believe that he is less patient today than he was then because our world is needier now than it ever has been. How many of you know that perspective is an amazing thing? The older we get, the better perspective we have of things. And One of the most famous motivational stories on the entrepreneurial circuit had to do with two salesmen that were sent to a foreign country to check to see what it would be like for them to sell shoes there. The first salesman went, and after looking around, he went back to his office, and he wrote back, my research is complete. This is an unmitigated disaster. Nobody here wears shoes. The second salesman went to the same place, and after looking around doing his research, rushed back to the office and sent this message. My research is complete. This is a glorious opportunity. Nobody here has shoes. The point, of course, is to see opportunity where others do not. To recognize what can be done when others see discouraging things. It's a story story to motivate us to the potential to to take the risk that others may not for the purpose of a great harvest. I have, as many of you know, I, I grew up in a missionary home. In fact, After God called me into the ministry, I begged God, please let me be a missionary. I've got to go someplace in the world, Lord, where people need to hear the gospel and where people are responding. And God very clearly told me, no, you're not going to be a world missionary. You're going to be a pastor in the United States that will elevate missions because that's what I want you to do. I said, okay. And here I find myself in Syracuse, New York today pastoring one of the greatest churches in existence because of you, not because of me, but because of you. But I came across a study that changed my heart. According to a study in the American Bible Society, Syracuse is one of the 15 least biblical-minded cities in the nation. Time magazine reports Bible-mindedness is defined by how Often respondents read the Bible or how accurate they believe the Bible is. The data is based on telephone and online interviews from a random sampling of people all over. And in fact, of the bottom 15, what they call the least biblical knowledge or the least holy cities in America... Four of them are in New York, and Albany at 99, Buffalo at 95, New York City at 89, and Syracuse at 86. And suddenly I begin to recognize God is letting me be a missionary. I get to be a missionary to Syracuse, one of the darkest cities, literally, and figuratively, and spiritually in the world. Thank you, Jesus. He answered my prayer. And in the middle of this, God plants grace assembly and says, you are to be the dispenser of hope in darkness. And the opportunity is enormous. It tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 20, that where sin increased, grace increased even more. In other words, the higher you are on the list of non-biblical-minded people, the greater the opportunity for the light of the gospel to break through and transform everything. God recognizes that we've been planted here for a reason because the city needs to know that there is a place that will proclaim Jesus who can touch their needs and meet them in their challenges and lift their concerns and help them to sense that there's more to life than just existing. Romans chapter 10 verses 13 and 14 states, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? This verse challenges us to understand the hope of Jesus that is undelivered is not hope at all. In other words, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We are building a facility so that people in Syracuse will not be locked out of the opportunity to come to know the grace of God, the opportunity that we enjoy on a daily basis. There are places around the world that have a keen sense of of knowing that opportunity is limited and they want to take advantage of it. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Cuba and teach in a pastoral leadership conference to pastors of home churches, and they couldn't wait to come and to be a part of it, to have somebody speak into their lives, and I was a part of a team that did that, and I was amazed at the effort that these men and women would go through to have the opportunity to be trained. Many of them rode in the back of a truck, I believe I have a picture here, for hours and hours to get to Hogueen so that they could come and be a part of what was going on. And I can't imagine how uncomfortable it is to be loaded in the back of something you would put livestock in just to have a ride to get to a training facility. The building was completely full every day. There were no seats available in the place at all. And by the way, they don't have air condition there. And people really don't care. They squeeze next to one another because they so love the presence of God and the presence of God people, in fact, when they ran out of seats, there were others that would literally sit right next to the platform and and and, and uh, when they wanted to write notes, they moved over to the platform and began to use that as a table to write on at every window during these. Places There were people that were looking in and listening, pastors that couldn't get in that would sit out there. Many of them would sit down on the the ground next to the windows just to take notes of what was being taught. And, And we begin to recognize that because they all wanted to be more effective in their ministries to their communities. And the reason that they came, they would often say, is because they knew that Jesus was the only hope and that hope must be delivered at all costs. In our culture, Americans... Won't come to church if there's not a parking place. In our culture, if it's not too comfortable, then people are not going to stay. But our mission that God has given to us is that we reach the harvest field here. There's a book that's titled The Gospel with a House Key. Some of you may have heard of this book. It was written by Rosaria Butterfield and she has one of the most incredible stories that I have ever heard. She was a professor at Syracuse University. She taught English literature and queer theory. She was a committed lesbian in what she describes as being in a committed relationship and she was a self-described cultural warrior for radical feminism. She wrote an article that is still being used today as it relates to people trying to understand the lifestyle of those who are homosexuals. Some of you may remember back in June of 1996 when Promise Keepers came to Syracuse. I was pastoring another church and I remember coming with 40 men to that Promise Keepers event and and watched the dome fill. Rosaria thought at the time when she was teaching in Syracuse that this represented the worst of humanity coming into Syracuse, and certainly coming into her campus. She thought, what worse could it be than having Bible-believing, male chauvinist, Christ-following men come and try to change the culture of her campus and her city? So she wrote a scathing letter to the editor in the newspaper about all the probable damage that was going to be done by these Christian Bible-believing men and what they would do to her cause she had no idea the reaction that she was going to get. Mail literally flooded into her office. And as she opened each piece of mail, she would read it and she recognized that there were those that were writing to her and they were saying, Rosario, we are so thankful for you. Thank you for standing up against what's coming. Thank you for speaking what we all feel. We just want you to know we're so thankful for your courage. We love you. And she said, I begin to recognize that there were a lot of people that loved what I wrote, so I put those back in the envelope and I laid them in the they love me pile. She goes, there was another group of letters as well. Surrounded with people that told me that I was the worst of the worst, indicated that they hated me, hated my lifestyle, hated everything I stood for, and that I should just shut up and leave. She says, I would read those and then I would fold them back up and I would put them in the they hate me pile. She said, but I got one letter, and I didn't know what to do with it. I opened it, and I read it, and it was written by a guy by the name of Kent Smith, who was the pastor of a small church here in Syracuse, and she said, it was obvious when I was reading this letter that he did not agree with my lifestyle at all, but he wrote with such love and compassion and tenderness that it just made me stop in my tracks, and I I folded it up and I said, it doesn't belong in the hate and it doesn't belong in the love. I don't know where it belongs so she opened up the drawer of her office and threw it in the drawer and closed it and she says, every two or three days I would be drawn back to that letter and I'd open it up and I would read it again and at the end of the letter, Kent said, we would love my wife and I to invite you to dinner at our house on a Sunday night. She went to one of her friends and said, what, what should I do with this? And her friend said, are you kidding me? This is a wonderful opportunity for you to go in and observe the enemy in their natural surroundings. then you can use your personal interaction with these weirdos as fodder for your next article. She's going, that's a great idea. And so she called the Smith family and said, I would love to come to dinner at your house next Sunday night. She says, I went and didn't take me long to recognize I I could like these people. They treated me with compassion, respect, honesty, kindness, and great generosity. In fact, she goes, at the end of the first Sunday night when I left, they hadn't said a word to me about the Bible and they didn't tell me anything about being invited to their church, they just wanted to ask me questions about who I was and took a real interest in me. She said, to make a long story short, when I left that night, they said, hey, if you'd like to come back next Sunday night, you can have dinner with us again, and she said, I did, and she says, in fact, for the next two years, I spent just about every Sunday night having a meal with them and she says there came a point in time when through their kindness my heart melted and I committed my life to Jesus Christ she says in that moment when Christ came into my life everything began to change in my life I left the lesbian community I ended up getting fired from my job at Syracuse University I began to recognize how the love of God can change life she met a man by the name of Mr. Butterfield, they ended up getting married. She and her husband are now pastoring a church in Roanoke, or, excuse me, in Durham. They're, they have four children, two of which they adopted. And here's what she wrote in her book: "It was through hospitality that I was brought to faith in Christ." And she makes the case that in this climate, where we are, in upstate New York, regardless of who we're dealing with, that hospitality and the way that we treat and the way that we love and the way that we dispense hope will be what softens heart to what God wants to do more than standing up and hating people because of a people group they belong to. My prayer is that we can come to realize that the harvest is so important to our God and to us that we would recognize that We must be about the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into friends. Grace Assembly, we are a community of hope, welcoming people home. We are pursuing every heart. It's our vision statement, pursuing every heart, not just the easy ones, but every heart for Jesus locally to globally. You see, the gospel is supposed to come with a house key, We welcome people home to Grace Assembly. We call this a gathering place of believers. We call this a place where people come in and they say, I feel like I'm home when I enter in. I believe that that feeling should be extended to people regardless of whether Jesus is their savior yet or not. So gracious are we with the way Christ has redeemed us that we are that gracious with others and let Christ's love melt their heart. He's the one that forgives from sin. He's the one that changes lives. But we open or close a door by the way that we treat people and the connections that we made. Rosario went on to say this. So many live and teach their children that every stranger is dangerous. But the real danger is not what some stranger may introduce to you or your family, but the sin that will grow in you and your kid's heart when they leave a sheltered, self-centered life. It's not the stranger danger that is really harmful. It's the selfishness and arrogance spiritually and isolation from strangers that will keep us from the harvest field that God has called us to. Here's what I want you to know, and jot this down. Jesus converted you not to quarantine you. He converted you to commission you. Church, that's our job. He didn't save us so that we'd lock ourselves away. He saved us to release us. He says, open your eyes and look. The fields are ripe. This is why the new ministry headquarters that we are building for our community is going to be built with our community in mind. We want our city there. We will invite them there. We will serve them there. We will love them there. We will welcome them home there. We will have conversations with them there. We will get to know them there, and we will lead them to the hope of Jesus Christ there because that's who God has called us to. And the essence of following Jesus is pouring yourself out for the hope of others as he has poured himself out for us. Here's what I know. And you can jot this down. Loving people will never empty the heart and giving to the Lord's work will never empty the purse. The leadership of this church believes in you. If we didn't have faith that God was going to do something marvelous through us, we would not have opened our eyes to the field and we would have waited until all the circumstances were perfect. We would have waited until we had raised all the money before we acted. But while we would have done that, thousands of people in Syracuse would have died and gone to a Christless eternity. While we waited for the right circumstances. But our guiding vision statement says we will pursue every heart with the love of Jesus. Locally to globally. So Lord, you show us who. And we will love them. The scripture tells us that God is not willing that any should perish. In fact, God is not willing that grace assembly plateaus. God is not willing that grace assembly should begin to die or lose track of why God planted us here or the purpose of our existence. We are God's dispenser of hope here, and we, grace assembly, were created for this harvest, for such a time as this is why God has planted us here. Over these past several weeks, we have been introducing you to people and telling their story, and I want to introduce to you the Carruthers family as you watch this video.
1: I'm Carrie Carruthers, and uh, this is my husband, Tracy. We have two children, Adeline age 10, and Jasper, age six and a half. We ended up coming to Grace uh, through our daughter, Adeline. She was very good friends with Pastor Mark's daughter, Ellie, and um, Adeline came to Cave Quest with Ellie and really enjoyed her time there and wanted to explore the church more and we had not been in any kind of church in many years so our daughter ended up bringing us here.
2: We had a horrible relationship as far as our marriage was going especially towards the beginning of grace. We were dealing with drug and alcohol abuse because there was so much chaos and just destruction happening. Through this time it was just a matter of always feeling something else pulling on us always feeling something missing that should have been there for me to come back the second time and then even the third time it was just that that feeling that I got As soon as I walked into Grace it was I was at home at that moment I just felt so much light happening so much light in my life just shine down in such a dark place. Something you wouldn't expect to see and feel, you know, especially when you're living so far um, in the darkness.
1: It was such an open, welcoming environment to keep coming back to and to make relationships and friendships and have something that I've, I've never really had in my life that didn't require probably some kind of negative behavior.
2: Jesus has restored everything for us. Um, We see more of Jesus, Jesus' restoration in our lives and in our family, Um, spiritually, um, inside, you know, our our negative and just draining feelings that we used to have. Um, Jesus has brought a lot of a lot more love and a lot more um, goodness to us.
1: I'm becoming more and more open to sharing my own story of the years of addiction that I had in head and how I got into sobriety and how the church has played such a huge role in keeping me sober throughout the last few years.
2: I feel for us to boldly or for myself to boldly trust in God um, Just to put everything aside from what I've had to deal with, uh, from what my personal grievances were, from a relationship to our family, to history, you know, the drugs and abuse. um, To put it all aside and know that he's got a greater plan for me and I'm only here for that plan.
1: I feel like living generously at at this time in our life is so worth it because of the selfish living that happened for years and years and to be able to now to you know be sober and have a, a family a, you know of, of people that we can turn to at at any point at any time to have that is worth more than than any money i could ever provide to the church i would describe grace as like my second home
2: i, I feel by giving to grace we're able to give more to the community and help bring more in.
1: I'm really excited about the future of Grace. I'm really passionate about helping people get into sobriety, and I would love to explore opportunities to do that within the church setting.
2: I'm genuinely excited about the the growth of Grace. I mean, to even have more room for the classrooms, it's just going to be great. I mean, we're usually sitting elbow to elbow in some of these rooms. Reaching out to more areas of the community, uh, having the space to be able to do some of the stuff that we've been limited to do now for the past few years. So the growth behind Grace is, you know, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to the future and what it's actually going to have because I, I feel we're going to be actually able to touch a lot of people.
1: I've become who I am today because I have Jesus in my life. I could give you many examples of him knocking at my door when I was the deepest in my addiction and me completely shutting that door over and over again until I hit my own rock bottom and allowed him to help me and I can still see very clearly all the steps that Jesus took to help me get to the next steps to get me where I am right today and I could not have done it on my own. Really, any path that I look at in my life right now, they can all be glorious if I keep following Jesus.
0: Can I just say that from the first time they were here, they sat on the front row. <laughs> how, how awesome that was for me to turn and see somebody sitting next to me on the front row. And they, I love that you guys were so open with your story. But does that not tell us what God can do? And don't you love it that their daughter brought them to church? If you get the kids, you're going to get the parents. That's why we love children's ministry here. Thirdly, if you'd write down in your notes this morning, you are somebody's hope. Who's your one? You are somebody's hope. Who's your one? We live in a day where for your testimony to have power, it needs to be in relationship. Your beautiful words, your great discussion of what God has done have the most power when they are spoken in the boundaries of a relationship with somebody that will understand what it meant for you to be transformed and I want to challenge each of you today to have one person that is outside the faith that you are praying about how can I reach them for Christ we're calling this who's your one who's your one If every person in this church had one person that they were praying for and strategically asking the Holy Spirit for divine opportunities to share your life and faith with, can you imagine what would happen here? If you will seek and pray every day to build a relationship with somebody and to bring them to Christ and be intentional with them about bringing them into your life and into your home and then bringing them in fellowship into grace assembly of God, as you begin to commit to that, and attempt to have people in your homes, even once a month, just the very practical thing, let me challenge you to do it and watch what God will do with your testimony in combination with relationship. If we can do this, imagine the difference it will make in our church and ultimately our community that is one of the darkest in America. The Lord says the fields are white, the laborers are few, and God is not willing that any should perish. And so for those of you who are saying, well, pastor, I'll do that if I have a word from the Lord. Here's your word. (laughs) Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's within your power to act. There's your word. It's powerful direction that God has given. One of the most life-changing moments happened to me a number of years ago when I was traveling through India, and I was speaking in a number of different places there, and we were in a place called Vijayawada, India, and as we were approaching the place where we were going to be speaking that morning, we got caught in traffic, and a little girl came and knocked on the window of, of the car that I was traveling in, and I was in the back seat with the missionary, and somebody else was driving, and I looked out my window, and I saw this girl who had been horribly disfigured. She couldn't grow hair. Her face looked like it had been burned just horribly. One of her arms was, was not functioning, and she's saying, Rupees, rupees. And I reached into my pocket to give her some money, and the missionary grabbed my arm, and he goes, You can't give her any money. And I pulled my arm and I said, Why? And he goes, You don't understand. He said, There are so many babies that are born here that the parents cannot afford that they literally take their infants and they go and they sell them to a syndicate. The syndicate will take these babies and, in the case of this girl, will pour acid on her as an infant, burn her skin. They'll take other babies and break their bones, not giving them medical care so that they can grow up looking disfigured because people respond to that better. And they said if you were to give her money, she would go right around the corner and she would hand the money to the syndicate boss who then gives them just enough so that they can live because if they look too healthy, people won't give. He said, but you're going to meet some of those kids this morning because our missionaries have started buying them from the streets and we've created an orphanage. And that morning I had the opportunity of, of speaking. And my message title was, God can use every one of you. And at the end of that message, there was a little boy that was sitting near the front and and I don't know what had been done to his body but his legs and hips or back had been broken in such a way he couldn't stand up and he literally walked like a dog on all fours the bottom of his hands were as calloused as his feet and he came kind of to the front and he turns his head and he begins to speak to me and an interpreter came over to me and he said you just preached that everybody can do something for God would you mind telling me what it is you think I can do I remember that moment, kneeling down next to him and putting my arm around him and thinking, God, you better give me wisdom right now. And as I prayed for him and asked that God would reveal to him what it was he was created for, at the end of that prayer, he went back and joined the van with the other kids and they went back. And that evening, as we gathered back, he came wandering in, about midway through the song service part of the service and they came wandering, and there was a couple of boys that were connected to him and they sat down and i wasn't the speaker that evening somebody else was but at the end of the service he came running to me like a just like a puppy and he he was so excited to talk and i had to grab somebody to bring an interpreter over and here's what he said he said i went back to the orphanage this afternoon and as i was sitting on my mat in the corner The missionaries had bought two boys today. Both of them had had their eyes literally plucked out of their heads. They were blind. They brought them in and they set them on mats and and told them everything's going to be okay. And he said, I looked at them and they're shivering with fear. And he said, I wandered over and I began to speak to them. And I told them, listen, tonight we get to go to church. And he said, I recognize something. He goes, I will never be able to stand up and walk like you do. And he says, but I was the right height for those boys to grab my belt. He said, I got to be, as he described it to me, I got to be a seeing eye dog tonight. As one of them grabbed my belt and the other, the other. And he said, I led them to the house of the Lord. And tonight, they gave their heart to the Lord because they heard the gospel for the very first time. He says, I know what I can do. I know what I can do. And I've never been able to get that out of my mind of what it will be like to stand next to that boy when the rewards are passed out in heaven. Someone who had none of the advantages that we have. None of the comforts that we have. But he saw the value of who's my one. And I'll do whatever it takes to get them into a place where they can hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There is on your seat a little tag that I would like you to take right now. Because here's what I'm asking you for. We need to be constantly reminded that our new church, it's not about a building, it's about people. It's about people. And I believe that right now God is already laying upon your heart the name of one that you said, I will be committed to developing a relationship with this person for the specific purpose of loving them with the love of Jesus and seeing them come to Christ and bringing them to grace assembly with me so they can be part of this family and then at the end when you have filled that out and I know some of you did it right away because I had to keep you from putting them on the board during the greeting time we're going to end our service this morning by having you bring those up and putting them on a peg here because we're going to be praying for those people this week they don't even know yet that they've been targeted with the grace of God they don't even know that God is going to get them with his grace because we're going to love them into the kingdom So would you take the next minute and write down a name? If nobody is sitting next to you and there's an extra card, you can take two. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning and our worship team is going to begin to sing. And the moment they do, I'm going to ask you wherever you are just to come and and put it on a peg. And then after they've all been set on the peg, I'm going to ask that you would just stay for just a minute so that we we can begin to pray victory prayer over them. And that's the way that we're going to conclude today. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior but you would like to, we're going to have people that'll be standing over here on this side that'll be willing to pray with you we don't ever want there to be an opportunity for somebody who may be here today with things going on in your life and you just need somebody to pray with you we're going to have people available to do that so our altar workers after you put your name up there if you'd be available to pray over here and so as they begin to sing won't you come